to Revelation chapter 9. And these middle chapters of the book of Revelation are detailing the judgments to come as Christ opens and lays claim to the title deed to the earth, as Christ reclaims what is rightfully his as a prelude to the setting up of his kingdom. And we really see him beginning to break these seven seals on this scroll beginning in chapter 6. And we see the outcome of that being war and famine and pestilence and a universal earthquake. And then as he breaks the seventh seal beginning in chapter 8, there's silence in heaven out of which we see seven angels holding seven trumpets. And trumpets in Scripture are to proclaim judgment. We saw that at the Battle of Jericho in the Old Testament where trumpets were used. We saw it in the Battle of Gideon when, he, when God overthrew the Midianites. They blew trumpets. And so the trumpet is associated with judgment. And as each angel sounds, we encounter further devastation upon the earth. The first trumpet sounds and we see a third of the vegetation burned up. The second trumpet sounds, we see a third of the sea turned to blood. The third trumpet sounds, we see a third of the rivers poisoned. The fourth trumpet sounds, we see a third of the sky is darkened. The fifth trumpet sounds at the beginning of chapter 9 and we see a plague of demon locusts from the pit of hell who will torment mankind for five months. And then we come this morning to the sixth angel. And this judgment will be by far the most severe yet for mankind. And we read about it in chapter 9, verses 13 to 21. And I'd just like you to notice three aspects of this judgment. Number one, we'll see the prisoners unloosed. Secondly, we'll see the plagues envisioned. And thirdly, we'll see the people unrepentant. First of all, the prisoners unloosed. That's verses 13 to 15. Notice verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now, a voice comes from the golden altar. We saw this golden altar back in chapter 8 and verse 3. It's the altar of incense, the place where the prayers of God's people ascend up before him. And the only prayers we really find in the book of Revelation are back in chapter 6, verse 10, where the martyrs are praying and calling out to God to judge the earth and to put an end to the reign of sin. And so this is in answer to their prayers. And so the voice comes from the altar of prayer, letting us know that the voice that initiates the purposes of God on earth is the voice of prayer. And even in the tribulation, that period of time known as the day of the Lord, God is still responding through the prayers of his people. And that's exciting because that reminds us of the power that there is in prayer even when we deal with a sovereign God. Now the voice is directed to the sixth angel and we see the message in verse 14. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. The message is to release four angels who are bound at the Euphrates River. Now who are these four angels? Well, they are obviously evil angels due to the fact that they're bound. We never find in Scripture where a, uh, an elect angel is bound. They are free to serve God's people. And so we have four bound, fallen angels. Now, why are they at the Euphrates River? Well, the context doesn't tell us. We're not really given a reason. But the Euphrates River is a very significant location in history. Not only past history, but future history. It's the site of man's first sin, because the Garden of Eden was located by the Euphrates 
River. It's the site of man's first organized rebellion against God because the Tower of Babel was built by the Euphrates River. It is the site of the, the first major world empire, the Babylonian Empire. In fact, the city of Babylon, the ruins still sit there by the Euphrates River. And so it is a site where Satan, it, it, it's been a key location where Satan has in, been involved in the activities of man. You know what's there today? The Euphrates River runs right through the center of the country of Iraq and empties into the Persian Gulf. We see it on the news all the time. In fact, it runs right by the city of Baghdad, which is less than 50 miles from the ruins of Babylon. So as you notice the news, look for these four angels. Now, you won't see them. But they're bound there by the, the Euphrates River. In fact, the Euphrates River is the boundary of the promised land as it's described to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18. This is going to be the eastern boundary of the promised land. And on that boundary, there are four angels bound. One day, they will be released. And when they are released, verse 15 tells us when that will happen and what will be the result. Verse 15 says, and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. Notice God has the time set. It's not an hour as the King James Version says here. It is the hour. The article is there. He's not describing the period of time they will be released for. He's describing the moment in time when they will be released. It will be the hour of the day of the month of the year. God has it already prescribed. Everything is on schedule. And even these four angels, it says, have been prepared for that moment. Prepared just as the great fish was prepared to swallow Jonah at just the right time. He says these four angels are prepared for just the right moment on God's calendar. And the result will be that a third of mankind will be killed. Now the fourth seal described in chapter 6 and verse 8 tells us that a fourth of mankind will be killed. Now we find that a third of mankind will be killed. And if you put those two together, it doesn't take a mathematician to figure out that if you take away a fourth and then you take away a third, you have essentially taken away half the people on the face of the earth in these two plagues. And so half of mankind will be wiped out at this point in time in the tribulation period. You say, well, why would God use demons to accomplish this? Well, the simple answer to that is that that is really uh, the desire and purpose of demons is to destroy man. And if you notice the activity of demons in Scripture, you'll find that they're primarily active in two areas, doctrinal and physical. They want to distort the truth, and they want to destroy man. And you will find them distorting the truth. You will also find them, whenever they're involved in activity in an individual's life, you will find some kind of physical affliction associated with demons. And you'll find when, in the Gospels when Jesus ran into somebody who was possessed by a demon, they were dumb, or they had a sickness. The woman who had a sickness for 18 years caused by a demon, uh, they were associated with afflictions on individuals, in fact, Jesus said in John 8:44 of Satan that he is a murderer from the beginning. And so here these four demons are released, and the result is going to be that they are going to kill a third of mankind. 
Now, how are they going to accomplish this kind of devastation? That's the second point. The plagues envisioned, verses 16 to 19. Notice verse 16. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. 200 million horsemen. Now, in order to get 200 million, you have to multiply 10,000 times 10,000 twice to get 200 million. That's a lot of horsemen. Now, there are two ways really to take this passage and interpret these horsemen. One is to take it naturally, and the other is to take it supernaturally. And commentators are generally sort of divided on this. If we take it naturally, then this is talking about an army of men. Now, older commentators had a problem with that because they couldn't imagine a 200 million member army. But today we don't have to imagine that because a decade ago, uh, Mao Zedong boasted that the Red Guard in China could field 200 million soldiers. That would be an army 87 miles long and 5 miles wide in formation. That's a lot of army. In fact, that's such a lar large army that you couldn't, really, uh, you couldn't really take them anywhere in a hurry <laughs> unless they walked. And uh, a lot of people who take this position turn over to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12, and they tie it in with the sixth angel who pours out the bowl judgments, which are the final judgments, and says, And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And so this army, if we tie it in with that, the Euphrates will be dried up to allow this great army to come from, from the east, from China and Japan, and, and come toward, across the border, really, of the promised land toward Israel. And that may be what he's talking about here. There's a second way to take it, and that is to take it supernaturally. Uh, that is that this is an army of fallen angels. And there's precedent for that in Scripture. If you think back to the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 6 describes Elisha's servant who was shown a spiritual army that was with them. And as he saw this army, it describes them as a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. Those were angels. Uh, it would also be in keeping with the fifth trumpet, which we read about earlier in chapter 9, and that is uh, this army of demon locusts led by Satan, which are described there as looking like horses and sounding like horses prepared for battle. And so if it is a supernatural army, it would tie in adequately with the fifth angel, which, which I believe is a supernatural army of, of demons as well. It would also help us explain the bizarre description of these horses as John describes them to us in the verses that follow. It is my preference, although I won't be dogmatic about this, to believe that what he's talking about here is a supernatural army, that he's talking about demon beings, that it's, in essence, the spiritual warfare that's taking on right now, that's going on right now, is going to burst into the physical realm. And that's what we see here. Notice as John describes these creatures verse 17 and this is how i saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them the riders had breastplates the color of fire and hyacinth and brimstone the riders have breastplates they're the color of fire and then he goes on to describe the horses and he says and the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke 
and brimstone. Now, that's not a normal horse. If, if you're going to take this to be a natural army, the way to explain that is to say, well, that is John in the first century trying to describe modern a tank or, a, or a, a, some kind of, uh, of uh, uh, personnel carrier or something that, that would be shooting these uh, flaming uh, missiles and so forth. Uh, it's my preference to, to go ahead and take it in, in context with the fifth, uh, the fifth trumpet and say that these are demon beings. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. Brimstone is always associated with judgment in Scripture. Uh, Luke 17, 29 says that it was brimstone that came out of heaven onto Sodom and destroyed Sodom. Later in Revelation 21, 8, we're told that the fuel of the lake of fire is brimstone. It is a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And brimstone is always associated with judgment. And so here are these, this demon army, and they are, they are sending out fire and smoke and brimstone, really the weapons of hell upon man. And the result of that is reiterated again in verse 18, where he says, A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. And again, it's like the contents of hell are going to be spilled out on the earth. And the result is going to be that a third of mankind will be consumed. And if that isn't enough, he adds in verse 19, For the power of the horses is in their mouth and in their tails, for the tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. And if they don't consume a person with the flames from their mouth, they'll inflict paralyzing pain upon him with their tails, and it will be impossible to defend against them. And after five months of scorpion locusts, and before men can catch their breath, here comes something far worse. 200 million living, attacking, murderous, fire-breathing horsemen. You say, well, surely those who survive this will have a change of heart. Surely something like this will drive men to their knees. Well, that brings us to the third and final point, and that's the people unrepentant. Look at verses 20 and 21. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Verse 21, and they did not repent. And these closing verses of this chapter give us a woeful picture of the heart of man. His heels are dug in in bitter rebellion against God. And you say, well, what is he holding on to? What is it that would keep man under these consequences from repenting before God? Well, he mentions a couple things. He mentions two areas, really. One in verse 20, that is their belief, and the other in verse 21, that is their behavior. Two things they're hanging on to. One is what they believe, and the other thing is the way they behave. And their belief is described in verse 20. Their belief is really idolatry. Verse 20, and the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Even as they're being tormented and killed by demons, they will continue to worship them. And the way that they will worship them is through idolatry. And idolatry has always been the way of demon worship. It, it runs through the history of man, and it is prevalent today. 
And when the restrainer of the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, spiritism, which is growing in momentum today, will overtake the world. Spiritism, which is closely tied with the whole New Age movement, is going to take over. And it's going to be demon worship in the form of idolatry. They will not repent of that, and they will not repent of their behavior, which can be described in one word, and that is sin, verse 21. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. I've said it often before, behavior always follows belief. A man will become what he believes. And a man who holds to a false creed will eventually be false in character. And here we see their character, it's sinful. They're clinging to their sin. And John mentions four particulars. The first is murders. In the midst of all this bloodshed, man is still going to be murdering his neighbor. And we see the setting for that today because we live in a society where human life is cheap. And you can look for it to get cheaper as man takes that mentality. Secondly, he mentions sorceries. Great word, market. It's the Greek word pharmakeia from which we get pharmacy. He's talking about drugs. Man's not going to repent of his drugs. Let me tell you something. I can say from this passage that we are not going to win the war on drugs. It's going to be a prevalent thing in the tribulation period. Thirdly, he mentions immorality. And even in a time of pain and desperation, man is still going to be sold out to his lust. And I guess that shouldn't surprise us either because a good portion of our society today doesn't even consider it to be wrong. I saw an article in the paper just a few weeks ago. Headline said, Americans do poorly on sex knowledge test. And it was the uh, recent Kinsey Institute survey. The reason we did so poorly on it was because we didn't know, only less than a quarter of Americans knew that the typical American has first intercourse at age 16, less than a quarter of us knew that more than one out of four American men have had a sexual experience with another male, less than a quarter of us knew that as many as 40% of married men have had an extramarital affair. Now, to me, that's not a sex education test. That's a sex morals test. And then the conclusion was this. In the article, Kinsey director June Reinisch said... Poll results emphasize a need for sex education of pre-adolescent children. We need to teach the children. Her reason was this, so that they will know when they do such things that they're normal. Well, I'll give you some sex education this morning. It'll be free. Immorality, homosexuality, extramarital affairs are not normal. They are sin. And they need to be repented of. But we live in a society that wants to say, that's the norm. And in a future day, man is going to cling to that position and will not repent. And then fourthly, he mentions thefts. And if you read between the lines when you, when you heard about the San Francisco earthquake, you read that they had a great problem with looting out there. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when half the population is dead and there are all these material goods just lying around the theft that's going to take place. There's the picture. And it's a sad reminder of the sinful heart of man. 
A third of the earth's vegetation is on fire. A third of the sky is darkened. A third of the world's water is polluted. Half the world's population lies dead on the ground. And man will still not repent of his hard heart and his sinful practices. Now, it tells me something. It tells me that God's judgment will not soften rebellious hearts. God's judgment will not soften rebellious hearts. Nobody will ever be judged into repentance. And one of the beautiful things about that is that God is not responding today in judgment. God is welcoming us today with open arms. And the thing that draws us today is not judgment, it is God's love and God's kindness. Romans 2.4 says, The kindness of God leads you to repentance. Judgment will never do it. It'll only firm man up in his hard heart when judgment comes. Today is a day of salvation, and God is responding in loving kindness. You know, this won't be the first time that hell ever came on earth, because hell came on earth at Calvary. When Jesus hung there, God poured out the judgment of hell upon him, and he paid for it. And that's why God can stand with open arms today and offer us grace in this day of salvation. And if we refuse his grace, we'll never respond to his judgment. We'll just become hardened in our unbelief and our rebellion. You know, as I read this, I don't find myself really being judgmental. I just find myself being real thankful because I'm thankful that what hell on earth won't be able to do, God's loving kindness has done in my stubborn, rebellious heart. And I just thank him that his grace has broken through the, the barriers that I've put up there and brought me the mercy of salvation. I hope you can say that this morning as you sit here.